Good morning. Our reading comes today from Genesis 18, um, verses 16 to 33, which is the end of the chapter. Abraham pleads for Sodom. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will so that he will direct children, his children, his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so the Lord will bring about for Abraham what I have promised. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so grievous that I will go down and see what they have done. It is bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom. But Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous as the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will you not judge of all the earth to do right? The Lord said, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke again, Now that I have been so bold to speak, to you, Lord, through though I am nothing but dust and ashes. What if the number of righteous is five less than fifty? Will you destroy the whole place because of five? If I find forty-five there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again he spoke to him, What if only forty are found there? He said, For the sake of forty I will not do it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry. But let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. If only 10 can be found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. Then the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham. He left, and Abraham returned home. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. My name is Pastor Brendan. If you know me, then you already know that, so no surprises there. If you don't, then now you know, so good for you. Um, <laughs> I would love to meet you after the service if this is your first time here. Special welcome to you. Um, I'm going to pray and then we'll get into God's word. 
Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word, and we ask today that you open it up to our hearts and open up our hearts to what you have to say in it. And we ask that in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. There's a climactic scene in The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn uh, in which the, the hero finds himself at an emotional crossroads. Uh, he's raised in the, the slave-holding American South, and Huckleberry Finn is a 13-year-old brought up by a brutal alcoholic father who resents him getting any kind of education. His naivety and um, simplicity in approaching the world is part of the charm with which Mark Twain writes him. One day, pushed to the limit, he fakes his death and flees into the arms of adventure and soon encounters Jim, the mild-mannered runaway slave that Huck had first known as someone's property back in town, but then soon becomes his friend. When Jim is captured, he's going to be sent back to his owners for the princely reward of $200. Huck is forced to resolve a conflict between two forces in his life. The first is his primitive and admittedly flawed understanding that God wants slaves to submit to their masters. And he had been taught that doing things like helping slaves escape would, be, would warrant him, in fact, for condemnation to hell. It's a grotesque understanding of Scripture, but absolutely what they were teaching historically back in the South. The second force is Huck's own affection for Jim as a friend and a companion who's treated him well in their adventures on their riverboat together. Eventually, Huck writes a letter. Um, he's going to send it to the slave's owner to tell, him, or tell her where Jim can be found. He does this fearing the wrath of God, and the scene reads like this. Um, I'll read it in the, in the uh, interesting um, southern terms that are written there, but I won't do the accent for fear of making it comical. But I could. I felt good and all washed clean of sin for the first time I ever had felt so in my life. And I knowed I could pray now, but I didn't do it straight off but laid the paper down and sat there thinking, thinking how good it was that all this happened and how near I come to being lost and going to hell. And I went on thinking, and I got to thinking over our trip down the river, and I, I see Jim before me all the time in the day and in the nighttime, sometimes moonlight, sometimes storms, and we're floating along and talking and singing and laughing, but somehow I couldn't seem to strike no places to harden me against him, only the other kind. I'd see him standing my watch on top of his instead of calling me so that I could go on sleeping. See how glad he was when I came back out of the fog and when I come to him again in the swamp where there was such a feud. Such like times as that. And would always call me, he would always call me honey and pat me and do everything he could for me and how good he always was. And the last, at last I stuck the time I saved him by telling the men that we had smallpox aboard. And he was so grateful and said I was the best friend old Jim ever had in the world and the only one he's got now. And then I looked, I happened to look around and see that paper. It was a close place and I took it up and held it in my hand. I was a trembling because I'd got to decide forever betwixt two things and I knowed it. I studied it a minute, sort of holding my breath and then says to myself, all right then, I'll go to hell and tore it up. Now, the scene was written with the intention of twisting the guts of Christian readers. Um, the author had this conflict himself in which he couldn't reconcile his sense of justice with the God that he read of in the Bible. Twain was that kind of huffy intellectual who likes to ride high on contempt for the things that other people revere. He had that childish 
um, observation that the God in the Old Testament seems more wrathful and the God in the New Testament seems more merciful, but then fails to show up to work the next day for the real effort of understanding why that appears to be so. Much easier to declare the God of the Bible a schizophrenic mess and then strut on one's way, greatly reassured that even if God is strange and unreasonable, at least the world has pulpit satirists like Mark Twain to hold it together. But we would be incredibly dishonest if we said that this conflict between our own consciences and the actions of God that we see in the world and in Scripture doesn't exist. There are circumstances which call for wrath, and there are circumstances which call for mercy, and when we see both of these things appealingly navigated, we recognize that as justice. But what do we do when our sense of justice conflicts with God, who we recognize to be the author of justice? And this week we're looking at the first in a two-part study of that moment in Scripture of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, as we read about in the um, Abraham's conversation with God leading up to it. The idea that God would obliterate whole towns full of people no matter how badly they'd sinned and their actions offended him is notoriously difficult for people to grapple with. And so a huge point of contention for non-Christians like Mark Twain who value justice but can't find it in the Bible. And next week we'll look at that passage itself and what it means and how we're supposed to understand it. But this week we're looking at Abraham and his sense of justice as it conflicts with God's proposed action. Because the very conflict that people have when they read the account of Sodom and Gomorrah and they say this doesn't seem right is experienced by Abraham in the preceding chapter. And God tells him he's going to destroy these places and Abraham finds this does not sit well with him. And then he does what has never been done up to this point in Scripture. He, a man, initiates conversation with God. Not an action that we instinctively think ourselves is particularly special. We have been raised to believe that we can speak to God at any time for any reason. But incredibly significant for Abraham, who knew God as a spiritual revolutionary who had taken an old man out of Babylon and promised him the world and then incredibly swept aside armies and kings and gods and anyone who stood in the way of that plan. So how does Abraham resolve this conflict that would either place him in opposition to his own sense of justice or the God who promised him children as many as the stars and destruction to all who would oppose him? And this passage plays out in four parts. God reflects, he speaks to the men who are with him, they're angels who are, who are there, who are, visit Abraham as God's companions, but also the three of them together seem to dimly illuminate a certain threeness that isn't completely revealed at that point in Scripture. Then he speaks to Abraham about what he intends for Sodom and Gomorrah. Then the Lord turns to go, but Abraham stops him by opening dialogue again at which point we enter a back and forth between Abraham and God, which is sometimes thought of as Abraham bargaining with God. And we'll look at each of those in turn and what they mean for us. But before we do, there's context that's important to understand what's about to go on. It's worth us remembering something about the story of Abraham up to this point, how Genesis 12 shows God promising Abraham that he will become a great nation and that um, God will bless him and bless those who bless him and curse those who who curse him. The Hebrews who are his descendants will be the people of God. God promises specifically that um, this will be through a child of his wife, Sarah, a promise that they find difficult to believe because she is past childbearing age 
and he's no 80-year-old spring chicken himself. Genesis 13 shows us Abraham's nephew Lot, who came with him out of Babylon, um, who was much like a son to him, living in the city of Sodom. And Genesis 14 showed us that when Sodom had been raided by its enemies and its people carried off as slaves, old Abraham had put on his helmet and taken up his spear and attacked a vastly superior force to save them. The king of Sodom had honored Abraham for this victory, and Abraham knew these people. They were living free in that city because he had saved them. On top of that, Abraham is still at this point coming to know who God really is. He doesn't have a full understanding of the nature of God, or as full an understanding as people do later on in Scripture. Um, Remember that God does not just sort of blast the full reality of who he is into people's brainstems when he meets them for the first time. Each of us comes to know God progressively more in our walk with him, and so too with Abraham. He comes, God comes to us in a way that we can comprehend and then progressively reveals more of himself to us. And so Abraham doesn't expect God to be all-knowing, just extremely wise. We know that... Um, God knows the hearts of the people of Sodom long before he sends angels down to snoop around, for example. That's something we know right now. But to Abraham, God sending his angels to investigate was a, a gesture of genuine interest in finding the truth. And furthermore, Abraham had a limited idea of, of time and the world. God had not chosen to blow his mind with the idea that he would live forever. That was too much for him to grasp at that point, a bit much to ask him to understand. Ancient peoples of the time did not expect to be resurrected and live forever. And that God would investigate and punish sins after death. To Abraham, the greatest promise was the one that God had given him, that he would live forever in the hearts of his children and grandchildren as their honored ancestor and the one that had founded their tribe and followed their God. That's the ultimate blessing he thought that he could hope for. Likewise, ultimate punishment, as far as he understood, was to be cut off from the world, your tribe's and your descendants destroyed. There's no greater punishment than that in his worldview. And so all of that's in focus when God comes to him and indicates he's likely to destroy Sodom. And God first reflects in verses 16 to 19. And I've put uh, God's words in orange and Abraham's words in blue when they come up, just for a little bit of ease of distinction in these big passages. And it goes like this. When the men got up to leave... They looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become great, a great and powerful nation. All nations on the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Now, does God owe Abraham an explanation? No. He's God. God does what he wants. What are you going to do about it? But he says to his angels, I'm not going to hide my intentions from him, even though he has no expectation for them, because I've chosen him. He's going to be the father of the Hebrew people. He's going to teach people of this God who they are following, and how following the way of that God is defined by doing what is right and just. It's an invitation to participate in God's righteousness, not just to observe it. To be more like God. And the craving for justice that humans have in their souls is one of the things that marks us as children of God. 
And so, having decided to bring Abraham in on the plan, God explains that he and his angelic companions were not, in fact, just in the neighborhood stopping by. They were on a mission. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin is so grievous, that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. This gesture of good faith to Abraham is incredible all by itself. Isaiah 45.9 tells us that the clay does not say to the potter, what are you making? Humans do not have the right to demand God's reasoning. God's purposes are sovereign and perfect. Nonetheless, Scripture demonstrates that at least occasionally, the potter will say to the clay, you know what, clay, let me show you what's going to happen here. God is teaching Abraham how to fairly apply justice. Hear the outcry, investigate, judge, and then act. He expects him to teach his children this. In some sense, he's the potter who teaches the pot how to make little pots if they follow instruction. And the metaphor gets a bit strained there. But God opens the door to permit Abraham in on this divine discussion. God is responding to the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, and he tells Abraham about it. And the outcry raises some question as well. Who exactly is crying out here? Are the people of these towns complaining about one another to God, and he's there to see if they're all as bad as each other? Are they people of surrounding towns bemoaning their lousy neighbors? Is this a, a spiritual claim that creation is, itself is in some special way groaning against the specific sinful malignancy of that cluster of creatures on its surface? God doesn't say. He indicates, kind of, that he's reluctant to believe these claims without checking their veracity personally. And we know, knowing that God knows everything, that that whole operation is divinely unnecessary. We know that God knows everything, like in the Garden of Eden when Adam is hiding and God calls out, Adam, where are you? We sniff and go, what, like God doesn't know where he's hiding? Our understanding of God's knowledge makes that scene a little ridiculous. But as a teaching exercise, especially to ancient people not prepared for abstract ideas like God knowing everything, like everything. It's a highly valuable thing. Adam and all the children that Adam would one day teach needed to learn that it is a man's duty to stand before God and give account for your sins, even if you would rather hide. Abraham and all the children he will one day teach must learn that a just ruler requires extraordinary proof or extraordinary claims if he's going to take extraordinary action. One can imagine Abraham passing the lesson on to a young Isaac someday in the future. I heard all Egyptians are smelly and dumb. My friend Asbel said so, and he's been to Egypt. Oh, really, Isaac? Have you met every Egyptian? Don't be so quick to judge. Maybe Asbel is smelly and dumb. There are many reasons for God to go through this process, as if he needed to discover the truth as a man might. But at this point in Abraham's story, it's a sign that God is requiring not just obedience, but inviting relationship. And then Abraham does what has never been done before. He starts a conversation with God. Usually God's the one to start these things. God comes to Cain and speaks. God comes to Noah and speaks. God even came to Abram and spoke. 
But now, Scripture begins to reveal more of what it means to know God. It's not all about revelation. In some part, it's about conversation. The men turned away and they went towards Sodom. But Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare a place Spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Now, God hasn't actually said he's going to destroy these places, but Abraham picks up on the subtext. He's a clever cookie. And lacing his questions with these reassurances that he's not backing out of the covenant and he hasn't lost faith in God's essential righteousness... He gets a foot in the door. You're not going to annihilate the place indiscriminately, are you? You're the God who drowned the wicked but spared the righteous in the flood. And if 50 of these guys turn out to be righteous, surely you, the judge, will not just scrub them all off the face of the world together. Now, importantly, we need to define what is meant by righteous the way that Abraham and God are using it here. They're talking about general righteousness, people who are flawed and often mistaken, but whose lives are characterized by what we would recognize as an effort to do good. This does not mean righteous in the sense that Isaiah means it when he writes that there are no righteous, not even one. This righteousness is not sinless obedience to God, because God doesn't whirl around to Abraham and say, but all fall short of my ultimate glory, and none are worthy of eternal, all are worthy of eternal destruction and none of salvation. That definition of goodness and righteousness is one that develops through Scripture. With prophets like Isaiah ratcheting it up to impossible levels to reveal our need, not just to know God as a father, but as a savior. But Abraham's not there yet. And when he says righteous, he means not so bad that you need to do anything drastic right now. These are the people that he feels he knows, at least in part. He spilled and shed blood for them. And incidentally, he was doing that because he was trying to save his nephew, but they didn't seem so bad when he met them. This is the kind of righteous that people usually are before they meet Jesus, who correctly identify that they are not so evil that God should, based on his previous actions, blast them off the face of the world all at once, but not nearly so righteous that eternity would be improved by having them in it. And so God grants Abraham that this is correct, and then Abraham pushes his luck five more times. The Lord said, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of people of the righteous in the city is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? If I find 45 there, he says, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him, what if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? And he said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just one more time. What if only 10 can be found there? And he answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. 
And when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. There are few passages in Scripture that are as often misread as this one. This happens when we read it like God's all fired up to destroy these places and Abraham has to come in to cool him down. Abraham cunningly lowering God's threshold for cosmic violence, like God is grudgingly agreeing to each request while walking away from Abraham faster and faster, trying to get away from the conversation. And when they finally scrape him off, the angels turn to each other and go, good thing we got away from when we did, otherwise we'd have absolutely no recourse for indiscriminate destruction. This is the mistake of presuming that God had wanted to annihilate these cities and Abraham had grabbed him by the collar and talked a little bit of sense into him. And some critics in fits of shallow cleverness have suggested that Abraham should have kept pushing until he'd whittled God down to four. And if he'd done that, then after the angels had discovered Lot and his wife and his daughters, the angels could have called the whole debacle off and everyone would have been better for it. But God shows no sign of actually being moved in this so-called bargain. On a thoughtful reading, it's more like God has invited Abraham to wipe away some of the mystery and discover that God's sense of justice is remarkably like his own. Will you destroy it if there are 50 there? No, obviously not. Will you destroy it for 45? No, are you kidding me? What about for 30? No, I'm not going to destroy it if there are 30 innocent people there. What about 20, 10? Abraham, who do you take me for? The implication is not meant to be that nine or fewer people is the magic number at which God will condemn a city to fiery destruction. The implication is that God is just all the way down to the level of individuals in his judgment. Which Abraham only dimly understands. He knows that now that God's judgment is not based on association or nationality or tribe. Those things are included but not limited to God's, to, uh, God's scope of judgment. God's judgment is based on individual righteousness, even the individual righteousness of groups that are not expressly God's named people. And we'll see that in the passage next week that we look at the uh, destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. How God finds, or God's angels, you should say, find only four barely righteous people in Sodom. And his response is not to destroy the place immediately, having met the criteria he had established with Abraham, but to remove these people from the city before destroying it. That's a meticulous individual care. And a scriptural shadow of the truth that Jesus eventually perfects. There are none righteous, not even one, but anyone who comes to Jesus can partake in his righteousness. And their sins will be washed away. God shows Abraham, who lives in a world where Babylon has its gods and Egypt has its gods and Abraham and his promised descendants now have their god that this one God will hold cities and nations and tribes accountable, but not at the expense of the individuals within them. That's the God who chose Abraham, and that is the God who chose us. So what does this mean for us? We've seen how radically different Abraham saw the world and how the episode is fundamental to him to build a worldview into his people that we now simply take as obvious. Is there anything left here for us to take away? I'll give you four. Four things. First, God wants his children to be just and righteous, not blindly obedient. 
He invites us to understand why he judges one thing as good, good and another bad, and why one city is worth sparing and another is worth destruction. Seeking to understand justice this way is not easy and not without its perils. It produces people like Mark Twain who decide that there's so little justice that they can find in God, they'd rather get rid of him altogether. But the kind of people who uncritically accept an idea of justice because it is wrapped in Scripture that someone has distorted are the kind of people who can build a society that offers $200 rewards for runaway slaves. We don't have to disregard Scripture as God's final authority, but we don't have to disregard our conscience, which God has installed in our hearts as our first authority. It's a lifelong work to harmonize the voice of Scripture and the voice of our conscience. Sometimes your understanding of Scripture has to shift. Sometimes your conscience has to adjust. But doing what is right and just is the way of the Lord. And that can't be done with brainless defiance or spineless passivity. Second, God is wrathful when he must be, but merciful when he can be. He's not hungry for destruction, he is hungry for righteousness. And he extends so much mercy waiting for people to come to righteousness. For all of eternity past, God the Father and the Son and the Spirit have existed in loving relationship with each other. So it shouldn't surprise us that love and the desire to restore relationship is primary to God's nature. And wrath, the destruction of those who will refuse relationship, is an ugly necessity but a secondary characteristic of God. When we look around the world and we see tyrants and atrocities and wonder why God doesn't strike down the wicked where they stand, we can trust he's being merciful because he can be. But when we look forward, we know that his mercy for the fallen world will not last forever. That there is a coming wrath where God will spare those who are clothed in Jesus' righteousness and condemn all those who are mired in disobedience and sin. Likewise, followers of God should have a great deal of patience with those they can be merciful to and preparation to judge sternly only when we must. Third, God's children can come to him honestly even when we are struggling against his will. And we may as well do it because he knows our hearts anyway. God is not afraid of you. If he makes a decision for your life that seems unjust, or if you read a passage of scripture and you can't reconcile it with your idea of justice, take that to him honestly. Obviously, don't be disrespectful in your prayer, as if you had a right to demand God do your will. But when God takes, for example, someone you love from the world before their time, most of your heart might be prepared to say, God's will be done. But don't act like God doesn't know there's another part of your heart that might be confused or angry and needs clarity and perspective and wisdom to reconcile it to God, the God who could have healed but didn't. That honesty in the relationship draws you closer to God and brings you more peace and trust in him for the things that you don't understand. Likewise, in scriptural matters, you might say, Father, I'm glad we don't do it now, but I don't understand how you could ever have commanded your people 
to stone homosexuals. I don't know how that could ever have been right in any context. And if that's a word in your heart, your options are either to bring that towards God honestly or try and conceal it from him. And you can guess which one of those is more damaging to your relationship with the Creator. But with that, God's children can speak to him openly until there are no more words left to say. This may come at a point of illumination about God's will like it was with Abraham. I see, God, you're not actually going to be as indiscriminate about this as I first worried you might. Or it might come at a point of persisting ignorance about God's will, like it did for Job. In that story, Job pleads his innocence against the punishment that he's receiving or the suffering he is receiving. He calls God as his witness that he hasn't acted to deserve this suffering. He knows he's righteous and that the righteous should not suffer. But God's response to him is essentially, I'm God, you're not, end of discussion. You're not going to get to know the answer to this one. You're just going to have to trust me. And Job's response is to trust. Neither Abraham's questions of God nor Job's questions of God are counted as sin against them. God's children can speak to him openly until there are no more words left to say. We are called to pursue justice and to display mercy and ultimately to trust God's authority in both. If he withheld his mercy, we would be righteously destroyed for the sin in our lives. But if he withheld his justice, we'd never become more just. And we would never be able to be part of a world free of sin and death and misery. That world would never make sense with us in it. Building that world and composing it of everyone loving God and loving each other has always been God's ultimate purpose for the world and his people. And even when we don't understand the road that gets there, we trust that God is making a kingdom that is perfect for us and making us perfect for that kingdom. So let's pray. Father God, we don't presume to know every aspect of your will, only that which you reveal to us. But we thank you for the way you invite us to participate in your justice and mercy in the world. Give us in our lives the discernment to act in a way that you would declare righteous. Give us the peace and the courage to come before you when we struggle to see the righteousness in your decisions. The wisdom to understand when you open your will to us, but also, Lord, the humility to trust and obey when you choose to keep your own counsel instead. May your Holy Spirit guide all of your children in this place to live lives characterized by mercy and justice. And we pray this in your son's holy name. Amen.